Let's go to the book of Acts as we continue our study. Uh, we're in Acts chapter 24. And as you turn there, I want to uh, remind you a little bit about where we've come from because this storyline is a continuation of several chapters of the book of Acts. Uh, so far, Paul has gone to Jerusalem to preach the gospel to his fellow Jews and uh, basically had made a vow uh, along with some other Jews to uh, a Nazarite vow and they were uh, participating in that and uh, some Jews from Ephesus uh, who had already run Paul out of Ephesus came and were trying to run him out of Jerusalem and so they accused him falsely of all kinds of things that he had not done and uh, started a number of riots and on two occasions during this rioting and this arrest process that Paul was going through with the commander uh, Claudius Lysias uh, Paul requested to speak to these Jews, and they're, they're, it's just a mob scene. Paul speaks to them on two occasions, and in both occasions they reject him, and, uh, and they continue to riot. And so uh, Claudius Lysias imprisons Paul for his own safety and to try to figure out what happened. Meanwhile, uh, Lysias becomes aware of a plot to take Paul's life. And so in the middle of the night, he takes him and, and uh, sends a, a bunch of guys, uh, soldiers, troops, horsemen, cavalry, and takes him to Caesarea, which is 60 miles away in the dead of night, so that Paul uh, can be spared and his life will be preserved. And so he goes to Caesarea, and he is imprisoned there under the authority of Felix, who is the governor or the procurator of that Roman province. And so now we find that the Apostle Paul, having been in prison for five days, uh, his accusers are coming from uh, Jerusalem to bring their charges against Paul in the hearing of Governor Felix. And that's where we pick up in the text in chapter 24, verse 1. Five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. And they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace under you, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect and even tried to desecrate the temple, so we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to learn the truth about all these charges we are bringing against him. The Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. When the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied, I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this nation, so I gladly make my defense. You can easily verify that no more than 12 days ago I went up to Jerusalem to worship. My accusers did not find me arguing with anyone at the temple, or stirring up a crowd in the synagogues or anywhere else in the city, and they cannot prove to you the charges they are now making against me. However, I admit that I worship the God of our fathers as a follower of the way, which they call a sect. I believe everything that agrees with the law and that is written in the prophets, and I have the same hope in God as these men, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man." After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when, I, when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance. But there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you 
and bring charges if they have anything against me. Or these who are here should state what crime they found in me when I stood before the Sanhedrin, unless it was this one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias the commander comes, he said, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and permit his friends to take care of his needs. Several days later, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was a Jewess. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul discoursed on righteousness, self-control, and the judgment to come, Felix was afraid and said, That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe, so he sent for him frequently and talked with him. When two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Portius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favor to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. Father, we thank you for this text of Scripture this morning, and I pray that you would bless Bless us, Lord, as we study. Bless us as we meditate and consider what you might want to speak to us this morning. These words are not only the words of historical fact, but they are words of transformation for us. They're words of wisdom, words that you considered important enough to include in your Bible. And so we're asking, God, that you would help us to be attentive, and God, that you would take my preparation, which I, I've, uh, I've done my homework, but God, I have no confidence in myself. But I'm crying out to you and asking that you would take the preparation and you would fill my heart and my mind and my lips with your glorious words that your sons and daughters who you love so deeply and care about so much, you know the number of hairs on their head, you're deeply acquainted with all their ways, and you have a plan for them this morning through this passage to advance the cause of Christ in their life. And we pray that, God, that you would be honored and that you would be blessed and that what happens here this morning would be a fragrant aroma to you. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. And everyone said, Amen. As we study this text this morning, I've, I've entitled the, the sermon, Delayed Deliverance. And it's not just Paul who's kind of languishing in prison, but there's another uh, set of people, uh, not the least of which is the high priest, Ananias, the Sanhedrin that came and accompanied him, Tertullus, but also Felix and his wife Drusilla who are being exposed to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And there's a delayed deliverance for these folks as well. And so interestingly, there's this convergence of these lives all coming to the point of hearing the gospel of Jesus Christ and making very different decisions about how to respond to it. And in the midst of all of it is the Apostle Paul, falsely accused, without justification imprisoned, and in many ways, representing some of the times that we face in life where we have delayed deliverance. And uh, it's mo more likely than not that most of us here in some ways are crying out to God, have some unanswered prayer, some challenge that we're facing that we don't know what the outcome will be, and we are also in this place of waiting, this delayed deliverance. And I'm praying as we go through the text this morning that the Lord will use Paul's experience and the recording of his experience in this chapter uh, to help us to know not only how to respond, 
but what God is actually doing during these times of darkness where we don't know what's going to happen next. The text picks up in verse 1 where Paul has been charged and, uh, and imprisoned. And Ananias and his gang, uh, they have to make the journey to, to Caesarea, 60 miles. They need to get their papers together. They need to hire an attorney. And so they come uh, five days later with the purpose of bringing these false charges against the Apostle Paul in the presence of Governor Felix. Now, we know a little bit about these characters already, and I won't, won't repeat everything we talked about last week, except to say that Ananias was the high priest. But unfortunately, he was infamous for being one of the most cruel, one of the most evil, one of the most violent, tempered, and corrupt high priest ever to hold the office in Jewish history. And he was surrounded by men under his leadership, we can only surmise that they were probably equally uh, corrupt and evil under the leadership of Ananias. These are the chosen men that Ananias brought who would certainly fall in line with his corrupt practices. So we've got a corrupt high priest with corrupt elders who are coming to bring charges. And then they bring a lawyer with them. The word in Greek is rhetor, where we get our, our word rhetoric from. And it means someone that is a speaker or a forensic uh, orator. And so we have this attorney that is, is retained by Ananias and the Sanhedrin to represent them before Governor Felix. Now, there's several reasons for this. One is that Roman law was fairly complex and wasn't necessarily very familiar to the high priests. And so that was part of the reason that they brought him. The other is that uh, most often these proceedings would take place in Latin, which wasn't necessarily a native tongue for these Jewish leaders. And thirdly, and probably most importantly, is they wanted to maintain, maintain some sense of dignity and decorum as they sent their attack dog, Tertullus, to make these false accusations against the Apostle Paul as aggressively as he could. Now, Tertullus comes before Felix to present these charges, and I need to take just a minute to talk about Felix. You know, when you read these passages and don't know the history, it would appear that this is a real great thing for the Apostle Paul to be before this governor, Felix, before a Roman procurator, someone that was independent, that was unbiased. But we know from history that uh, Governor Felix was a very corrupt man. Uh, he was born a slave, but through a uh, really an interesting set of circumstances, his brother became very familiar friends uh, with one of the Caesars, with, uh, uh, with one of the leaders in, in Rome at that time. And uh, because Paulus, his brother, had such a, an affection and a good relationship with the Caesar, he was able to not only get his brother released, Felix, but he was also able to, to get him an, an appointment as a procurator of Rome, a governor. This is the first time in the history of Rome that a slave was ever appointed to such a position. We also know that he was married three times and divorced twice. And we know that uh, Tacitus, the Roman historian, said the following about his life and his character. He is a master of cruelty and lust. He's a man that indulged in every license and excess, thinking that he could do any act of evil with impunity. So here is a man who believes that he's above the law and has very little interest in justice. And this is the man that Paul is coming before, being charged by those that are supposed to be spiritual leaders of Israel, and yet who themselves are corrupt and violent and wicked even in this role of the spiritual leadership of Israel. And so Tertullus begins his comments, as any good attorney will, with flattery. He begins to flatter Felix. 
Now, again, if you don't know the history, you would think, wow, Felix must have been pretty good. Reforms, peace, but all of it was a lie. And, and, and the biggest lie of all was saying uh, how beneficial that, that uh, Felix had been to the Jewish community and how the Jewish community was very grateful for his leadership. It was all a lie. It was just a big lie. It was just complete flattery. Because we know historically that uh, not only were there very few reforms under Felix, but he was actually two years later removed for incompetence because there were so many riots in his town and his city and under his leadership. And so um, I, I can just imagine Felix, he's just soaking this stuff up and he just says, you liar to himself. But he says, keep saying it. I kind of enjoy it. And then you've got the Jews who are listening to this who just are like, you know, gagging. But they're like, he's on our side. So whatever we have to do to, you know, uh, smooth the way and oil the, uh, the tracks here, we'll do it. And so it's, it's quite interesting uh, that all of this is happening. Everyone knows it's a lie, and yet it's accepted anyway. You know, the Bible talks about uh, flattery in, in uh, not so good terms. Uh, it actually has a variety of commandments against flattery because it corrupts both the giver and the receiver. Proverbs 29.5 says, whoever flatters his neighbor is spreading a net for his feet. And uh, there's a big difference, by the way, between encouragement and flattery. Encouragement, you're actually building something up, uh, building someone up in an area of truth, that they really have accomplished these things or God is using them in a particular way, and you're encouraging them. Flattery is when you're saying things that just aren't true about someone to puff them up, and that's what's taking place in this particular text. And so Tertullus asked for this brief hearing, and amazingly, he was brief as an attorney. He made four particular charges against Paul. Each of these charges required the death penalty if they were found to be true. The first charge is that he was a troublemaker and guilty of sedition or treason against the nation of Rome. Death penalty. The second was that he was a ringleader of a Nazarene sect or a cult. This word sect in the Greek is where we get our, our English word heresy from. And uh, this also was the death penalty because not only geopolitical factions exi existed in Rome at the time, but we have uh, religious factions that are taking place. You remember when Jesus said that there are going to be false antichrists that are going to rise up among you? There was such an anticipation in Jewish history uh, and Jewish understanding of prophecy that the Messiah was going to come, but because they rejected Christ, they, they still thought he was coming. And, and this window of history that they were in was significant prophetically. And so a lot of antichrists were rising up. And all these antichrists, they had one agenda, overthrow Rome. And so every time someone was brought to the attention of a Roman procurator like Felix, he became very concerned. And so again, a ringleader or a chief revolutionary of this Nazarene sect uh, would classify someone as a death penalty case if he were convicted. Thirdly, he was charged with stirring up riots with the Jews all over the world, a great concern to Rome, one that they, uh, that they handled very aggressively and very overpoweringly uh, with death to the ringleaders of these kind of riots. And fourthly, he was accused of trying to desecrate the Jewish temple. Again, uh, not that the Romans cared about the Jewish temple, but they cared about peace in Rome. And so they dealt with these things very, very aggressively. And so here Apostle Paul is facing these numerous charges, each of which carry the death penalty if he's accused. And he's facing a corrupt high priest. He's facing a corrupt spiritual leadership of Israel in the Sanhedrin. He's facing a corrupt 
an immoral and ungodly governor, Felix. I don't know how you'd feel about that (laughs) if you were facing those kind of odds, but that's what the Apostle Paul is dealing with. Jesus had comment in, uh, in the Sermon on the Mount when he told his disciples that they would face moments like this. And you also, and I also at times, will face moments, maybe not this severe, but face moments in life where, we'll, where we're going to be falsely accused. But Matthew 5, verse 11 says, Jesus' words, Blessed are you when people persecute you and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Rejoice and be glad, because great is your reward in heaven, for in the same way they persecuted the prophets who were before you. And so Jesus is saying, hey, this is going to happen. These false accusations will occur. And he says, rejoice. Yay. You know, I get there. Have you been practicing this week? It doesn't look like you've been practicing this week. So Paul is facing these these tremendous uh, life-threatening accusations. Now, there's something that happens in the text technically I need to talk about just for a moment. If you've got a newer translation of the Bible, um, you'll notice that it skips from the end of verse 6 to verse 8. Do you see that in your Bible? Where's verse 7? If you have a King James, verse 7 is there. This is a, uh, an issue of a, it's called a textual variant in the Scripture. Uh, and I want to take just a moment on this, not long, and I don't want it to be complex, but the man- manuscripts from which we get our English translations uh, are ancient, they're old. And, uh, and in the translation of the Scriptures, we have thousands of extant Scriptures, which means portions of the New Testament and Old Testament in the original language, And the idea is is that the farther back you go in these manuscripts, the more reliable these manuscripts are. And so the Bible that we have in our hand is translated from the most ancient manuscripts. But there are two primary uh, um, manuscripts that we draw from. One is the Textus Receptus, which is what the King James is translated from. And then we have the Byzantine manuscripts, which are actually older than the Textus Receptus, which is another line of, of manuscripts that we have from which the New Testament is translated. And in the older manuscripts, the Byzantine manuscripts, uh, verse 7 doesn't exist. And so some of the newer translations of the Bible don't include that verse, but parenthetically at the bottom of your, if you have a study Bible, you'll notice that, uh, that the note is there about what actually takes place in verse 7. And I'll read it from my own notes in, uh, in my own Bible. It's referring to Lysias and, uh, that they, or the, the people of uh, the Sanhedrin. They wanted to judge him according to our law. But the commander Lysias came and with the use of much force snatched him from our hands and ordered his accusers to come before you. So that's what verse 7 contains. These are the same, virtually the same lines that we've already read before. There's no new information. There's no contradictory information. Uh, about 99.5% of the Bible, uh, is, is, there's no disagreement on these textual issues. But in some cases, there are differences between these two strains of manuscripts. Uh, 99.8% of those have nothing to do with anything of any consequence theologically. And they're just variations. And generally, the rule of thumb when a, when a person does this kind of scholarly work in translating the scriptures, uh, they are they will go with the most abbreviated um, manuscript. And the reason is, is that their assumption is, is that somebody will add, more likely add something for clarification than they would be to delete something because that was just unheard of in, uh, in Hebrew manuscripts. And so this addition more than likely was a side footnote, just explanatory comment that was on the side that became inserted into 
the Textus Receptus manuscript. But I just wanted to share that with you. I'm, I'm not trying to confuse anyone, but I like to explain the scriptures clearly so that you know what's going on. I know some of you are like, I didn't even know there wasn't a verse 7. Well, now you know. And you know why. Verse 8, the other Jews that were there also said, examine him yourself. And they asserted that these charges were also true against the Apostle Paul. So you've got a mountain of accusation against one godly man standing by himself against Rome and against the Supreme Court and Senate com combined of the Jewish nation of Israel. Fairly daunting. There's something I want to just draw out here quickly before we uh, go any farther, and that's a, a verse in Proverbs 18:17, And it says, The first to present their case seems right till another steps forward and questions him. The first to present his case seems right until another steps forward and questions him. There's a very interesting principle here that's important for us in our Christian family and Christian conduct. The reason that uh, we go to court, the reason that there's attorneys and lawyers is so that two people can present their case in an unbiased environment to have a just rendering uh, on that decision. And so in Rome, as in any court of law uh, that's just, you have the prosecution presenting their charges, and then you have the defense presenting their defense. And then the judge makes a decision only after hearing both sides. It would be immoral, unethical, and completely out of character, certainly with our nation, uh, legally at least, for a judge to hear the prosecution and then say, I don't need to hear anything else. I'm horrified by what I just heard. You're guilty. You're dead to the defendant. That would be unjust. And that's what the scripture is talking about in Proverbs 18, 17. The first to present their case seems right. Isn't that the case? Somebody tells you something and it's like, what? I can't believe they did that. You're serious. What? And we get kind of riled up. Am I the only one? Okay, so it happens to other people too. And, and you know, inside, you know, it's like, you know, there's a little bit of like anxiety and concern and sometimes even some anger that can kind of accompany that until we actually talk with the other person and then you hear the other side. This is one of the reasons I rarely ever counsel couples uh, privately. The, the husband and the wife separated. And I have them, they want to do it all the time. Somebody say, I'd like to uh, have counseling, and, uh, but I really need to come and see you before my husband and I come in because I, I need to share some things with you first. You know? You know where that's going, right? And I'm like, I'm sorry, I don't do that. And I, and I quote this, this proverb to them. And the whole reason is, is they kind of want to get the edge. That's the whole point. They want to get in and get the edge and kind of win you to their side before you have the sit-down meeting with everybody. And it's like, oh, yeah, I know now. He may not say all these things, but you filled me in. I got the skinny on this guy. I know how to probe. Now I know the questions to ask. Are you following me? Now, here's the thing. You're thinking to yourself, what does this have to do with me? Well, this is what it has to do with you and with me. In the body of Christ, we are called to be a just people. And we are not just if we're willing to hear the report of one person without the other person being present to defend themselves. It's called gossip. And I want to thank you because you're a church that doesn't do much of this. I don't hear much of it at all, which is part of the reason why our church is so healthy uh, and why we don't have conflict and we don't have, you know, there's no, somebody asked me the other week, when will we find out what's really happening in the church? And I'm saying, this is what's happening in the church. What you see, there isn't anything else. I'm sorry to disappoint you, you know. There's no drama. But part of the reason is, is that you have taken to heart the teachings of Scripture. And God is calling us to be a just people. So the rule of thumb is, is that you shouldn't be presenting your case to a third party, uninvolved, 
person who has no authority to deal with a situation unless you intend to have the other person that you're bringing these charges against present because you're filling that other person's mind with a one-sided, lopsided, unfair advantage of, of their failings. And it's wrong and it's sinful. So even as a nation should be just, even as a, a court system should be just, we also, how much more as Christians should be just in our conduct in how we speak about one another? So the rule of thumb is simply this. If you have something derogatory to say someone, the Bible says in Matthew 18, go to that person privately. That means not even to your spouse first. You go to the person privately, directly, and resolve that issue. The only time it's really permitted in Scripture to bring a third party in is if that first effort has failed and then you bring two or three witnesses with you. You don't get on the phone with 15 people and tell them how bad this person is or what they did to you. It might all be true. Gossip is not untrue. It's true. Slander is false. And so uh, there's a, a little, these little nuggets along the way that are so important for the health and life of our families and our community and our church but, uh, but because Felix was a just man, at least legally speaking, uh, he went through this process of allowing the Apostle Paul to speak. And so we find Paul defending himself in, in verse 10. He acknowledges the experience of the judge, uh, but he refuses to use any flattery that Tertullus used and, and instead, instead acknowledged Felix for what he could. And the Bible tells us in 1 Peter chapter 2, 17 that, that proper respect to be, should be shown to everyone. Love the brotherhood of believers, fear God, and honor the king. So even though Paul knew what the kind of man Felix was, nonetheless, he showed him proper respect. And he make, begins to make his defense by retelling some of the events leading up to his arrest, that he went to Jerusalem to worship, he wasn't arguing with anyone, he wasn't stirring up a crowd, and he actually challenged his accusers to actually give any proof, any evidence whatsoever for these very serious charges. He affirmed in verse 14 through 16 his belief in his character. And he said, I worship the same God as these Jews. I'm a follower of the way. It's true. They call it a sect. And of course, the way, the truth, the life, this is where this phrase comes from, from John 14, 6. He believed in the law and the prophets, as did the high priest, as did the Sanhedrin. He had the same hope as his accusers did of the resurrection of the dead of both the righteous and the wicked. That's mostly true because remember the group was mixed in the Sanhedrin. But the Sadducees didn't believe in the resurrection where the Pharisees did. But Paul is pointing to this resurrection because it was an important component of the, the Pharisees' belief who were a part of the Sanhedrin as well. And he's pointing out something very important even for us to consider is that there is going to be a resurrection and everyone lives eternally. So if you actually go around to people and say, hey, you know, if you come to Christ, you can live for e forever. You, well, that's true, but they're going to live forever ever, whether they accept Christ or not. Everyone that you see on Kauai, everyone that you talk to, whether they're a believer or not, are eternal. They are going to exist forever and ever and ever. The only question is one of location. That's the question. And Matthew chapter 25 makes it very clear uh, the choice eternal punishment or eternal life in the parable of the goats and the sheep. And of course, God's heart is that all of us would enter into eternal life by receiving Christ and then walking in obedience to him, which is the evidence of a true conversion. Because of this, Paul says something very interesting, a verse that many people have memorized, maybe you've memorized as well in Acts 24, uh, 16. But he says, 
So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and before man. And so we find that Paul is, uh, is wanting to keep his conscience clear and he tells us what his motivation is. It's the resurrection from the dead. In other words, he's saying, because I live in light of the resurrection, because I know the resurrection is coming, because I know I will stand before the judge and have to give an account for my life, Paul says, I strive. That's an effort, isn't it? I mean, I don't, you, know, you, don't, you don't strive to do something that happens automatically. You know? We have to strive to do this. It's an effort to keep a clear conscience. And uh, the reason we have to strive is because it has to do with not sinning against God or sinning against people. And, and that takes effort. Yes, God is the one that empowers us to live this life, but we still have a part in it. And so Paul says, I strive. As a result of the hope and the promise of the resurrection, I'm making an effort right here and now on a daily basis to live and conduct my life in such a way that I'm honoring God and having a clean conscience. And it's of great value to have a, have a clean conscience, not just for the future uh, kingdom, but also uh, just for your, for your own uh, peace and your own enjoyment of life and your own capacity to have a reputation that honors the Lord. So Paul begins to continue on with, uh, with his gifts and his offerings, and he was ceremonially clean, and there was no crowd, there was no disturbance, he wasn't inciting a riot, and, uh, and he said, you know, if you really want to know who brought these charges against me, it's not even these guys here, it's the Asian Jews from Ephesus, and they should be here. Why weren't they there? Very simply, because Roman law, along with Jewish law, based on Deuteronomy 19, said that if you were found to have perjured yourself, in other words, lied under oath in an accusation against someone else, whatever you were hoping would happen to your opponent that you were accusing would, be happen, would happen to you. So if you wanted a death penalty on your opponent and, and the court found that you had perjured yourself in some way, immediately you were given a death sentence. So it was very serious. So it, it really spoke volumes in behalf of Paul that these Asian Jews who had the original complaint and accusation wouldn't even show up to the hearing. So all of these things take place. I can't imagine that any of this took more. If, if this is a, a complete rendering of the actual events and, and uh, conversations and the presentations of the two sides, the, the prosecution and the defense, this took like 10 minutes, 15 minutes at the most. And so Felix now is supposed to do what a good judge does is they begin to ask questions, right? They want to have, call witnesses. They want to uh, speak with, their, uh, with the attorneys from both sides and they want to hear the arguments. But Felix doesn't do any of that. The Bible tells us that he had a good understanding of the issues before him. He knew about Christianity's explosive growth in his region, in the Middle East and as well as in Jerusalem. He knew about this intense jealousy from the Jews because of these massive numbers of people that were turning to Christ. He also knew that Paul was innocent. How did he know Paul was innocent? Because his commander, Claudius Lysias, had already sent him a letter in chapter 23 of Acts pronouncing his judgment that Paul was completely innocent, certainly not guilty of anything that would demand the death penalty, and not even guilty of anything that would demand imprisonment. So Felix already knew. He already knew the truth. And he also knew that the case was based on theological differences between Judaism and Christianity, which had absolutely nothing to do with Roman law. And so Felix does something quite stunning and interesting as he adjourns the proceedings. And he says, when Claudius comes, the commander, then I'll hear this case again. I don't know about you, but do you kind of notice that Claudius never shows up again? Is that interesting? 
Is it because Claudius just disobeyed the procurator, the governor? Absolutely not. His, it would have been the death penalty for Claudius. My contention to you is that Claudius was never called. Claudius was never even asked to come. Claudius never even knew that the, the proceedings were adjourned until he was supposed to arrive because Felix never asked. Why? Why wouldn't Felix ask and follow through with Claudius coming? Well, I think for, for very simple reasons. I believe that Governor Felix was an absolute self-preserving coward. That's the truth. He was only interested in maintaining his own position and his own authority, and all of that was at threat because of this case before him. Why? Because if he released Paul, the Jews would go ballistic and they would riot, and that would threaten his position as a Roman governor. It would also put Paul at risk because he's a Roman citizen, and if, if uh, Governor Felix released Paul, uh, Paul would be killed by the Jews, and he would be responsible for the death of a Roman citizen. But if he imprisoned Paul and put Paul to death, he would be guilty of treason against the nation and a Roman citizen because Paul was innocent and he knew it. So you see, he's caught in this really awkward spot. Now, this is a spot that I hope nobody ever is, is in, but on occasion, we're going to be in these positions where we have to do what's right, even if it costs us our job or our, our lifestyle. Or you know, we, It came up in our staff meeting a few weeks ago about what we would do as the nation is moving farther and farther away from the teaching of God's word. And now more and more there's threat to the, the ability of a pastor uh, to, to teach the word of God as it's stated in the scripture on certain moral and ethical issues. And, uh, you know, my, my response is, look, this church is God's church. This property is God's property. We won't vary from what the scripture teaches. And if we lose it all, we've got so many of you guys that are leaders, we're going to start 100 home fellowships on this island, and you're going to go to town, and we're going to win more people to Christ that way than we even could this way. But we've got to be willing to let it all burn. We've got to be willing to let it all go. And I, my contention is this. Though there are courageous people like that that don't know the Lord, we have a special advantage in having this kind of courage because we're dead already. Dead people don't have an agenda. And they don't have anything to defend. And they don't have anything to prove. When we came to Christ, the Bible said that we have died. And we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. I talked about this last week. Galatians 2.20. Paul says, I have been crucified and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. And the life I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Do you realize how absolutely freeing it is to not have anything to defend anymore? To just be able to say, you know, God, it is all yours. Kind of like, as, as Job said, freely I received, or not, that wasn't Job. He said, uh, uh, what did Job say? Job said, uh, it's slipping me. Naked I came, naked I go. Blessed be the name of the Lord. I'm, I'm ascribing to Job Jesus' words. So, um, yeah, so we, it, it gives Paul this capacity to be a truth teller even when he's under stress, but Felix doesn't have that freedom. And so he imprisons Paul for this uh, long period of, of two years, put him under house arrest, and uh, then began to send for him and to listen to him with his wife, Drusilla. I need to talk to you about Drusilla. She's amazing. She's a stunning knockout. At the age of 15, she was being courted by several kings, one from Egypt, one from Assyria. The king from Egypt wanted her as, as his wife and was all ready to get married and was just like, okay, the day came and he wouldn't become a Jew. And he said, I'm not going to become a Jew to marry her. Boom, engagement off, divorce. 
You know, already divorced at 15. Can you imagine? Okay, and then she gets married to King Amisa from Assyria. And King Amisa marries her when she's 15. And, uh, and he loves her, and, you know, he's just as corrupt. He's not godly. She's a Jewess, but not walking with the Lord, obviously. And, uh, and then King Felix makes his way at, at, at some point uh, in, in the time of her relationship with King Amisa. And, uh, and King Felix is completely taken with her stunning beauty. And so he seduces her from her husband. They have an adulterous relationship, and he runs away back to Rome with his prize. This is, this is how this woman's life begins at age 15 and then 18. She had a very gruesome uh, connection as it related to Christianity. Her great-grandfather, Herod the Great, had killed all the baby boys in Bethlehem to try to eliminate this potential threat to the throne, Jesus Christ. Her uh, great-uncle, Herod Antipas, was the one that beheaded John the Baptist. Her father, Herod Agrippa, was the one that killed the apostle James. And again, now Paul is dealing with the, the culture of the time. He's dealing with his opponents in the high priest in the Sanhedrin. He's got Felix who already, you know, is totally ungodly. And now he's got a Jewess who kills Christians and kills the followers of Christ. This is not looking good. Now, I, I share all this with you because what would you do if suddenly you were presented the opportunity to share Jesus Christ and all the fullness of that message before people such as this when your life is on the line? And you've got a Jewess who has a long history and a heritage of martyring believers. Would you kind of scale the message back a little bit? Would you kind of not preach too much on the heavy stuff and just kind of, you know, light-foot it through the gospel? Oh, Jesus is going to make your life better. Jesus will give you peace. Jesus is going to give you eternal life. You, you have all these benefits and these blessings. He'll never leave you or forsake you. He's a friend that sticks closer than a brother. Or are you going to tell him about hell? Are you going to tell them about the judgment? Will you tell them about punishment for unbelievers? Will you call them to righteousness? Well, Paul, is, um, he's dead, remember? He's given up his life, and so he full throttles it right in front of these guys. <laughs> he just doesn't, he doesn't hold anything back. It says that he spoke about faith in Christ, and he began to discourse in the context of that on three things that are so significant in terms of evangelism that I, I'm hoping you'll really pay attention to this part. The first thing he talks to them about is righteousness. Righteousness, the, the, the perfection of God, his high and perfect moral and ethical standard for his own life and for those that call on his name. Now remember, you know, we're talking about multiple divorces, we're talking about fornication, we're talking about complete immorality and unethical and ungodly behavior from both Drusilla and Felix. And they're listening to this and they're thinking, does he know who he's talking to? I, I, in my hand, hold his life. But because Paul is dead to himself and loves God and loves Felix and Drusilla, he preaches the truth. And he tells them, this is God's standard. Let me begin at the beginning. Probably told them about Adam and Eve. Told them that it only took one sin for them to be ejected from the kingdom of God. God will not allow even a single sin in his presence, to be accepted. The idea of your good outweighing your bad is eradicated by Scripture because the Bible says you must be holy and absolutely pure if you expect to enter his kingdom. And I can just see Felix and Drusilla and like, you know, hear these completely corrupt and immoral people hearing the Apostle Paul telling them of God's standard 
for acceptance into the kingdom of God. And then he begins to teach on self-control, something that obviously Drusilla and Felix were not well known for. The only other place, interestingly, that we find this particular word in the Greek in the New Testament is in Galatians 5.22. It's the fruit of the Spirit. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. This capacity to live a righteous life. How do, how, where do we get righteousness? Well, obviously it comes from Christ. We're going to talk about that in a minute. But this capacity to live a self-controlled life so that we don't keep investing in an ungodly heritage for ourselves and people that follow or watch, the Bible says that we are given by the Spirit of God this capacity to live a life of self-control. In other words, we don't have to be victimized by our flesh. I'm not saying we can live a sinlessly perfect life, but I am saying that there is a component of self-control that's important in the Christian life. We have to exercise it on a regular basis. I have to get in front of the mirror every day and, no! You know, I just tell myself, all those things that I want to do today, no! So I have to exercise self-control. And the funny thing is, is I have to get up in the morning. I get up, I go to bed and I'm thinking, Jesus, it's all for you. I get up in the morning, it's all for me. No! You know, I got to remind myself. And that's why the Bible says every day we have to die to our flesh. I wish I could just put my flesh to death once and be done with it, you know, and it was just a cakewalk into the kingdom. But it, it, it appears that every day I have to get up and I have to bark at myself and remind myself to live a self-controlled life. And the Spirit of God gives me strength like he does you to be able to lead this kind of a life. And then Paul ends up talking about the judgment to come. And this is the, there, there are two judgments. There's a judgment for the unbeliever, which is the great white throne judgment. Nobody ever wants to be there. I hope none of you are there. I would be so grieved and devastated if any of you stand before the great white throne because that is the judgment of unbelievers. Those that turned away from God, that lived an ungodly life, that rejected his command and his leadership in their life and said no to Jesus. Those people will be judged for every sin they've ever committed, every thought they've ever had that was ungodly, and they will pay for eternity in the flames of hell. I, I wish it weren't so, but this is what the Bible teaches, and it's important that you know it, and it's important that you communicate it. The Apostle Paul is communicating these truths in front of Felix and Drusilla. But there's also another judgment that's going to take place that's by far better, and it's called the Bema Seat Judgment. The Bema Seat Judgment is a place of reward. It's not a place of punishment. And by the way, I've heard this uh, taught in messages before, and so have you, that uh, when you get to heaven as Christians, there's going to be a big video screen on the, in heaven, and everything you've ever done is going to be shown on that screen. So you better be good. Right? Well, it's not true. The Bible says that all of our sins have been washed away. All of our unrighteousness has been dealt with at the cross and we are clothed with the righteous raiment of Christ. And the only judgment that you will receive as a believer is a, is a, is a judgment of reward. It was going to be like the Olympic Stadium, you know, and it's standing before uh, the, the, the throng of all of heaven and all of creation and everyone that's godly and you will be rewarded for every good deed you've ever done. You might not have a lot, I don't know. You might have a ton, but whatever you've done, that will be your judgment and you will receive a reward, not a punishment, because the punishment was taken care of on Calvary by Jesus Christ. And so Paul teaches on righteousness, God's standard. That's what the Ten Commandments were for, by the way. Did you know that? 
The Ten Commandments weren't some standard for us to try to leap up to and, and achieve. They were given at a time when Israel was in disobedience to God and it was given so the people knew how far from God's standard they had fallen. And it was given so the people could say, we can't even keep the simple ten ones, much less the 613 that are recorded in the Old Testament. They were given to lead us to Christ. And so preaching the righteousness, just coming to people, a lot of times I'll say, you know, have you ever stolen anything? Well, nothing big, you know. Well, have you ever stolen like pens or paper clips at work? You ever take, you know, extra stuff home? By the way, I've lost like at least two dozen pens in my office over the last two months, and I know <laughs> it's some of you. I can't blame it on any one person, but I know God will find you out, you know. <laughs> so I had to go get another big pack of those pens. But, you know, if you've even stolen anything small, you're, you're a thief. You're guilty before God. You are eliminated from the kingdom of God unless there is a standard of righteousness that is to your account through Christ. Have you ever thought a bad thought? Ever envied someone? Ever lusted? Ever hated your parents? Ever disobeyed your parents? If you have done one of these things one time in your entire life, the righteous standard of God says you are not fit for the kingdom of God. And yet God in his grace has made a way. And it's through the finished work of Jesus who took upon himself every sin, every penalty, every pen, pen you ever took, and you know who you are. <laughs> Stay out of my office. No, you can come in. Just don't take my pens. But everything that you've ever done, Jesus took upon his own shoulders and he said, it is finished. Paid in full. But before he even gets to the gospel, the good news of this message, the Bible tells us in verse 25 that Felix was afraid and he dismissed Paul and he said something interesting. When I find it convenient... When I find it convenient, I'll send for you. W. Clarkson said this. He said, If vice has slain its thousands and pride its tens of thousands, surely procrastination has slain its millions. How many of us, even you know, before we came to Christ, put it off, put it off, put it off, and now we're thinking, why did we put it off? But there's another application to this that's important. Putting off the still small voice of the Holy Spirit speaking to us where we just say, another day, I'll, I'll, I'll be, walk in obedience. Another time, another situation. When things are better, when the finances are in order, whenever this is happening, when that's fixed, when this is solved, then I'll follow you with the whole heart. But I can't quite do it yet. I'm reminded of a story, one of my favorite stories actually in the book of Exodus. And it's in chapter 8, verse 9. And it's uh, the second plague of Egypt and it was frogs, you remember? Ribbit, ribbit, frogs everywhere. You know what frogs do. You just pick them up and they leak all over you and they're just, they're messy, they're slimy, they're gross. And Egypt is completely inundated with them. They're in the temple, uh, not the temple, they're in the, in the palace, they're in, in Pharaoh's home. They're everywhere. And Pharaoh comes to Moses and says, get rid of these things, you know? And Moses says, you know, Pharaoh, I will. And I'm going to give you the privilege of telling me when you would like them gone. And Pharaoh thinks for a minute, and he says the most interesting thing. He says, tomorrow. Do you realize how stupid that is? <laughs> he still wanted to have some little bit of control. Do you see what's going on here? It's just control. He couldn't say right now, which is what he wanted to say, but he said, let's get rid of them tomorrow. I rather like them in my house. My boys are playing with them. We're shooting them. I don't know. I got boys. That's where my mind goes. Okay. But he says tomorrow. And, and all I want to say is that sometimes we're like that, aren't we? Where God says something to us and he's speaking to us and he's working on our hearts and we just say, 
tomorrow, tomorrow, I'll serve you tomorrow, you know? And that's how we sometimes live our lives. And I want to call you today to do it today. When God says, in essence, what God has said, when would you like me to deliver you from your sin? That's what he's saying to us today. When would you like to be delivered from the consequences of your sin? And we keep saying, sometime, I don't know, not quite done, a little bit more, I'm afraid, whatever it is, but God is calling us today. And he says, today, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. I tell you the truth, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the time. Some of you need to make some decisions today. I don't know what they are, unless it's my pens, and you can bring them back. I won't mind. Just (laughs) just set them on my desk. No one will know. You can put them back there. I'm not going to be in my office today. I'll leave it open. They're gel G2 pens. But Felix kept inviting Paul to come over and over and over, and, and, and Paul kept coming. Now, the text tells us that he was hoping for a bribe, and meantime, Paul is saying, I'm just going to keep giving the gospel to this guy. I'm going to just keep giving it. Part of the reason that Paul would not give in to the bribery is, number one, it was against uh, the commands of Scripture. Secondly, he wanted to trust in the Lord's sovereignty. He didn't want to alleviate himself and, and, and manage to negotiate his own uh, escape from this dilemma. But even more importantly, he wanted to preserve the future of the church's integrity, because if Paul caved in and gave a bribe, it would become known that the leader of God's budding church in Caesarea was willing to com- compromise himself, and so Paul would not accept it. And so the Bible tells us that he was in prison for two years, and the truth is that uh, we don't even have record of what happened during these two years. When Paul was in prison in Rome, that's when he wrote the pastoral epistles. We have no record of, of Paul writing letters We have no record of any of the meetings that he had with the people from Caesarea that came as guests of his. We have no record of what he did or what he accomplished during these two years. And I think of that as kind of like a black hole, you know? What happened? Talking about delayed deliverance. How did Paul manage? And it's a good question because most of us here have something in our life that hasn't yet occurred that we've been waiting for for a long time. We've been crying out to God for, for a spouse, for a child, financial crisis, for some sort of challenge we're facing. And there's a part of us that's like, God, are you there? Do you even care? Do you know what's happening? That's kind of what I would feel like. But we hear nothing of that from the Apostle Paul. He just keeps going to preach the gospel to Felix and Drusilla uh, time after time. And, you know, Paul was probably thinking maybe there was a two-year limit uh, for uh, a prisoner to be held without their court case being completed. Interestingly, when Portius Festus uh, 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 followed Felix, that two-year cycle began again. So Paul was thinking, I'm almost out of here. They got to do something with me. But he was passed on to the next governor. And he was left in prison as a favor to the Jews without any time limit that Paul was aware of. And I want to ask you, what do you do in, in circumstances like that? Because we face them where we don't know what's going to happen next. We don't know what the outcome will be. I'd like to, to share two verses with you. One is Isaiah 50.10 that is just such a phenomenal verse. I hope you underline it, mark it, maybe even memorize it. But it says, Let him, him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Let him who walks in the dark You don't know what's happening. You don't know what the outcome will be. You don't know where God is. You don't know what the answers are. It's just 
nothing, and you're still in the mess, and you're still in the struggle, and you're still in the fight, let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. Such a great verse. But there's another verse that I really love, and it's in James chapter 1. It says, Consider it pure joy, my brothers. Yay! Okay, good. Whenever you face trials of many kinds, you guys are so fun, because you know that the testing of your faith develops perseverance, and perseverance must finish its work so that you may be mature and complete, not lacking anything. Perseverance, hupomone, one of my favorite words. Not mone, that's what unbelievers do when they're in trouble. They moan. This is what ungodly Christians do when they're in trouble. They moan. Godly followers of Christ, hupomone. It's a compound word. Hupo means under, and mone means to remain or reside or stay. And so the word combination together of this compound Greek word means to stay under the load. Just stay there. Don't move. Don't do anything until God delivers you. I'm not saying don't work. I'm not saying don't pray. I'm just saying don't work the angles. Don't try to find a way out of this prison on your own. Don't compromise yourself. Don't bribe people. Don't be ungodly in the process. But learn to do the hupomone. Okay, now you know how to deal with the crises and the problems in life that God is going to face you with. You've got to learn to do the hupomone. And it's that capacity to stay and to wait until God himself delivers you. And when he does, it will be glorious. And I know some of you are in that prison of delayed deliverance right now. And we want to pray for you after the service. We'll have leaders right up here. Come, we'll pray with you. Pray for each other. But we all face these times. But God will see you through. And in the meantime, remember that your life is not your own. For God's purposes and God's strategies and God's eternal design, he is allowed, I'm not saying he did it to you, but he has allowed these circumstances to occur. And he will deliver you in his time. Wait for him and let his glory be magnified in and through your life. I want to close with just um, a couple of thoughts. One is that uh, simply this. If you're here today and you are either a person that's never received Christ before, and even as we talked about righteousness and self-control and judgment, you're, there's a conviction, there's a fear in your heart, I want to encourage you, don't delay. Receive the forgiveness of Christ. It's just as simple as asking his forgiveness and receiving the gift of righteousness that he paid for on the cross, taking upon himself all the penalty for your sin, you can do that today. And for the rest of us, we need to keep doing the hupomone. And, and as we can, yay, you know, rejoicing at the fact that God has considered us worthy. And by suffering according to his will, we're actually demonstrating that we are truly his children. And so people are watching you. They're watching you suffer. They're watching you go through your hardship. And you are becoming a witness of the power of Christ to a generation of people on this island that needs to know that God has the power to deliver those that call on his name. And he will deliver in his time. In the meantime, learn to do the hupomone. Father, we thank you for this time this morning. And I just uh, we love you and we love your word and we love each other. And I'm praying that you would touch hearts this morning. And I want to give just a moment right now for an opportunity for people in particular who uh, don't know the Lord or maybe have really drifted away and, and want to recommit their lives to Christ to do so. And so if that's you this morning, I just want you to raise your hand that you'd like to be right with God again. You'd like to be restored to him. Uh, you may have never received Christ before, uh, but there's something significant that he wants to do in your life right now. And you're willing to say 
when he says to you and he gives you the authority and says, when would you like all of this burden to be removed? And you have the option to say tomorrow, but you also have the option to say today. And if you raise your hand, I'll know that you're saying today and I want to pray for you. I see a hand in the back. Is there anyone else? Gentlemen here in the front. Anyone else? You're yielding your life to Christ. You're saying, God, all for you. All for you. I'm done. I'm done living my life for myself. It's all for you. Is there anyone else? I see another hand back there. Okay. Toward the back, a gal. Anyone else? Father, I pray for these, uh, these three individuals that have raised their hand, Father, and I pray that you would draw them close, Lord. I think that all of these people um, already know you uh, but are wanting to come back to you. And so I'm praying, Father, restore them. God, give them a heart to say today. Today is the day of salvation. Today is the day of repentance. Today is the day of a clean conscience. Today is the day of new life and a new beginning and a fresh start and a clean slate. And I pray that you would give them the power, Father, by your Spirit to live self-controlled lives. And Father, when they stand before you, it won't be before the white throne judgment, but it will be before the beam of seed of Christ where they will be rewarded and they will be gifted with your blessing and your pleasure for all of eternity. And Lord, for the rest of us, we just ask that you would help us, Lord, in the midst of our struggles to support one another, to encourage each other, to live godly lives, and to learn to do the hupomone, that we might live and honor you even in the midst of the crises that life brings our way. And may all the glory and all the honor and all the pleasure and all the majesty be yours and yours alone. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Would you stand as we close our service?